Is there a reason why they found a book in human skin? Apparently it was not uh, considered so odd back in the 16th century. Science and technology. Welcome to another episode of It's Only Science, brought to you by Discover Magazine. My name is Carl Engelking, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. We've been watching our audience numbers grow ever so slowly but steadily over the past few months. As small as it might be, it's still, it's an audience. Got so, to start somewhere. It's yeah. ours. So Hi, thank, audience. Hello. So, so thank you for, for joining us today. I am Carl Engelking again, and I am joined by my Discover comrades, Allison Mackey. Hello. Nate Sharping. Hey, audience. And Bill Andrews. Hi. Today on the show, Allison will introduce the gang to the scientific wonders of bookbinding. And if anyone can pull off this doozy of a topic from the boredom bin, it's it's Allison. Um, so I'm made for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Bill, as a math aficionado, you recently celebrated E Day, which mm-hmm. was, of course, February seventh, two thousand eighteen. Mm-hmm. So what the hell is E Day? Mm-hmm. Bill, I assure you all, will have more on that. Mm. <laughs> And Nate and I will present perhaps three of the most badass creatures on the planet. And you'll no doubt have a deeper appreciation for the wonders of nature after finishing this show. Um, But without further ado, let's kick it back to Allison and dig into the science of bookbinding. This was a pretty big topic uh, that I enjoy quite quite a lot as a a designer. And of course, we work with bookbinding kind of tangentially at Discover Magazine, every month when we're putting together the magazine. The magazine is, after all, basically a little book. We call it the book in industry parlance, too. Yeah, the front <laughs> of the book, the back of the book. Yep. But without bookbinding, we'd be shipping off every issue as a stack of pages or maybe even a scroll, like the first book. Uh, <laughs> special issue, anyone? <laughs> um, the process of binding a book creates a book. That's what gives it its structure, and it's what protects it from wear and tear. Books as we know them now emerged around the 2nd century AD in Egypt with a Christian sect called the Copts, C-O-P-T-S, the Coptic Church, who created a form of binding called Coptic or chain binding, where they would uh, sew leaves of papyrus together to collect their manuscripts. And around the same time, the Far East was coming up with its own form of binding called stab binding, which Mm. is pretty much what it sounds like. You take a sharp implement, an awl or something, and stab the book, like stab the one side of the book and, and sew that together. So that's stab binding, and people still use it today. A lot of DIY people to make photo books and things. Definitely uh, did that with some projects in third grade, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely Stabbed read yourself books. Some books. I've read books that I wanted to stab. <laughs> so the process is alive in my heart. And in fact, bookmaking today can be divided into to two types of binding, adhesive and non-adhesive, like whether you sew it like just sew it or, or use glue or glue in combination with sewing. My guess is we have more adhesive bindings these days. Yeah, adhesive is kind of what you see, the mm. paperback hardcover books you see in the store. In the early days, it was pretty much just animal glue and, and wheat paste, like just flour, like mixed up with water that they would use to as an adhesive. But now we have lots of synthetic adhesives. Mm. Just real quick, is there a difference between glue and paste that we could discuss briefly? Like what is it? I don't know either, but my guess would be paste is more pasty. pasty. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. It's like a dryer adhesive rather than glue, which is kind of wet adhesive. So you yeah. add some flour to glue and it becomes paste. Yeah. 
Well, let me write that down as something to look into. Yeah. Just curious. So with any specialization, like book binders have their own collection of terms that I won't get into. It's going to get confusing. There's signatures, recto verso, fly leaves, different types of folding. If you want to bind a book at the bare minimum, you'll need some sort of awl or, or poking stick, some thread, a bone folder, which you use to crease the paper and, and press mm-hmm. it down. That's, that's pretty much it. Something to cut with, maybe some glue. And then you'll need to figure out what you're going to bind your book with. The first book covers were actually just slabs of wood that mm. uh, like the leaves of paper or parchment or vellum were put between to keep them flat. And then people discovered that these slabs of wood were actually protecting those books. Books have been bound with paper, leather, metal, and jewels, and even human flesh in some cases. Oh, <laughs> I've seen that movie. Isn't that held at like Harvard University or something? There is one at the, Harvard, yeah. It's like necromancy. Yeah, no, no, actually no. Skin um, book. And then the term for books bound in human skin, there's actually an academic term for it, is anthropodermic bibliopedgy. Mm, <laughs> that doesn't sound so bad. Does that sound right? like a disease. How would you pronounce that? <laughs> I think you were pretty close. Yeah, anthropodermic yeah, bibliophagy. Bibliophagy. Yeah. Bibliophagy? <laughs> no, like, like eating Bibl- books? Peggy. 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 Oh, yeah. Peg- Peggy or Peggy? <laughs> and you're right, there, there is one at Harvard. They actually thought that there were a few at Harvard, but testing has found a lot of those were actually made out of sheepskin. Um, is there a reason why they bound a book in human skin? Apparently it was not uh, considered so odd back in the 16th century. Um, <laughs> t- testing and, uh, Times were different. Yeah, the uh, assistant curator at the, the Harvard Library said uh, like confessions of criminals were occasionally bound in the skin of the convicted cool. or oh. an individual might request to be memorialized for family or lovers in the form of a book. <laughs> hey, so babe. Your, your autobiography. <laughs> yeah, in your you own can, skin. You can read it which, and you can feel it. <laughs> which gross, Ooh. right? Yeah, like, <laughs> that's the world through my skin. Uh, I guess that's as close as you can get to walking in the world through someone else's skin or something, right? <laughs> I mean, they say, oh, you know, your, your skin kind of tells tales of your life. The, the particular book at Harvard is called Destinies de l'Homme. <laughs> it's a French book from the 1880s. Mm. Contained an inscript, inscription on the inside of the book uh, reading, This book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. By looking carefully, you easily distinguish the pores of the skin. <laughs> uh, was there a little hair? A, book, a book about the human soul deserves to have a human covering. Mm. I, I had kept this piece of human skin from the back of a woman. What? <laughs> Just casual. Just as you do. Had you it know. sitting around in the house and had to do something with it. Can't, let, even can't let back her. skin go to waste. Didn't even name the woman. Just nope, not the back just, of a woman. You know, she, I just I just found it who on her really back. Matter. Yeah. And uh, t- 2014 tests confirmed with 99% accuracy that that binding is, in fact, the flesh of a human being. <laughs> mm. Well, there, but, uh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I have another another weird one along the same route. There's a, a historical medical library in Philadelphia. actually has five of these these skin books that have been tested and confirmed. Is there any like uh, approximation of how many skin books are, are hanging There's out? There's a group there? that's like trying to collect all of them. I think they... At last count, they had tested 30, and like 18 of them were actual skin. Wow. Mm, what a macabre a library you could yeah. assemble. <laughs> but this particular, this one in Philadelphia struck me as particularly weird because three of these five books were all bound by the same person, a Dr. John 
Stockton Howe, and they all use the skin of the same person, a woman named Mary Lynch who died of tuberculosis in 1869. But the books themselves weren't bound until the 1880s. So yeah, they were doing he just uh, was just hanging onto her skin for. But that means like they had to have skinned her and like uh-huh. yeah, you know, cured stored it, it and cured it. Yeah. And so I want to know what happened before the book was made in that what eleven year period. What you was know, it we all do. <laughs> you know how writers are when it comes to deadlines. They had the materials lined up, and then the writer was like, "I'll get the book to you next week." You know, twenty years later, they finally had enough to make the books. I guess. Apparently, all three of the books were um about female reproduction and health. <laughs> So Why does that need a skin covering? Dark joke yeah. or something. <laughs> in the in the eighteen sixties, that was as macabre as you could get in content matter. It's, I guess. it's a subject so taboo oh, that they were trying to keep people away from it by binding <laughs> it in human skin. Man, the the real the big question here is: Does human skin make a tough, durable book binding? Apparently, these volumes still exist. So, hey, you could do worse. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. I mean, I love books, so I wouldn't mind. Being turned into a book after I yeah, die. Yeah, it's gonna be. This is really. <laughs> this is mom. This is dad. This is. Yeah. <laughs> Just all collected on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. If someone gave me a book like that, or like I come across it in the library, I would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just it doesn't. I can touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Stick it in the microwave for like thirty seconds oh, for no, full no, effect. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, it is mm. creepy. <laughs> Just imagine someone saying, you know, no, of course I'm not lonely. I have all my friends right here. Ah! Points to bookshelf. <laughs> there you go. So another more recent study I found that comes in at the intersection of bookbinding and science is uh, last summer, a group of scientists actually uncovered some hidden writing in the binding of a book from 1537. Oh, like a uh, secret message from the, the bookmaker or it was the actually writer? It was actually a piece of parchment that was already centuries old at the time it was bound. Like, mm. I guess back, back in the time, like those materials were so precious that they would just reuse them. So bookbinders would take like even older manuscripts and just tear them up and use them in, as part of the binding. Reduce, reuse, recycle? What did it say? Um, it was like a 6th century text about Roman law that they oh. think might have been part of like a university Exciting. study. <laughs> I can imagine scientists are now going back to all their archives and taking a closer look at all the that's, books they yeah, have That's now. the exciting part because they found by combining these two methods of, of uh, x-rays and hyperspectroscopy, I think it was called. Um, Neat. They can now go back and possibly find more hidden texts, you know, things that are oh, yeah, it's like, even like finding, hundreds of years older than the actual books. Like finding texts like buried underneath texts too. Yeah, Just, it's kind of like paintings that have been painted over mm-hmm, that they mm-hmm. can start to see now. Sounds like something out of Dan Brown. So I thought that it would was be a good premise. Neat. Yeah, a Dan, skin book with a hidden message. <laughs> that was for free, Dan. Just plug us <laughs> on, on a, your tour. Oh, and by the way, the scientific term for the study of ancient writing is paleography, which sometimes overlaps oh. with code ecology, the study of the physical aspects and techniques of ancient bookmaking. Oh, paleography. It's so elegant, a word. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Before we uh, leave the bookbinding world, I mean, I could go on. I condensed 24 pages of notes into <laughs> three pages. <laughs> Allison does her homework, folks. Hey, come on. We got we to gotta work with the attention spans here of the new generation. That's right. I just want to add on one quick story. Um, we actually have bookbinding to thank for one of the... Um, most prominent famous scientists of our time back in 1805 England a brilliant but undereducated 14 year old boy started a seven-year apprenticeship as a bookbinder 
but instead of just finding the books, he would stay after and read all of these books when he was that he was oh, finding. Yeah. And uh, you guys know who I'm talking about yet? <laughs> he started a. Is it Faraday? Tesla? It is Michael Faraday. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I thought when you said Tesla, I heard Elon Musk in my head. Oh, yeah. He's not that old. <laughs> yeah, Tesla uses a Faraday cage right now. Yeah, he does. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Faraday's story is crazy. But yeah, basically the father of uh, electromagnetism, like, we wouldn't have gotten him if he hadn't started reading these books that he was binding. So, so go book binding. Thank go you. So from so from book book nerds, let's make a pretty graceful transition to some nerdy math. And is there any other kind? No. <laughs> and we'll go to our, our resident expert on on the subject. So what is E Day and why did it happen to fall on February seventh? When else would it fall? It sounds a little silly. It sounds like something out of the internet, like marketing, like you know, you've got e commerce, e readers, email. So E Day, what are we electronic days now? No, it's like Pi Day. Pi Day is March 14th to celebrate and honor the number Pi, 3.14159, etc. That one's gotten a lot of fame. People know all about Pi Day, but not too many people know about E-Day, which is to celebrate the number E. Is there something we can eat on E-Day as well? Unfortunately, it does not mm. lend itself as much <laughs> as <laughs> Pi Day. Ah, the number E. <laughs> yeah, the number E. It, it sounds funny, but it's a very important number. The number itself numerically is 2.71828, etc. So that 2.7 is why it's on 2-7, February 7th. And in particular this year, 2018, the 1-8, really, it came together perfectly. 2718 is the first four digits of E. If you missed it, if you, if you guys let E-Day somehow slip past you this year, um, it's big year, that's okay. Just pretend you're like the rest of the world and you can celebrate it on... July 2nd, because we're like the only country that does month day, month day and everyone else does day oh, month. Yeah. <laughs> so we can all we kind of another chance. Yeah, we can pretend we're continental and celebrate this momentous occasion in July because E really is an important number. I'll do the esoteric stuff first. So like anyone here take calculus when they were young? Unfortunately, yeah, I had to. Barely. Unfortunately, it was a great class. It can be a great class. And so E is a very special number in calculus, if you take the derivative of a function that is e to the x, the derivative is the exact same thing. It's it's still e to the x. The rate of change of this formula is the same as the formula itself. That's what a derivative shows you. And that's unique. That's the only formula for which that's the case. So that's kind of neat, right? Cool. Okay. An oddity. If you recall the natural logarithm, ln, as opposed to just the log 10 or something of a number, Natural logarithms are base E, so anytime you see that ln of a number pop up in an equation in a, in a study, that's using E, and you'll see that pop up all over the place. E is used, E and the natural logarithm of it are used in things like calculating the bell curve, population equations, calculating success probabilities in repeated experiments. So E is important fundamentally to science, to numbers and and the maintenance thereof. But perhaps more usefully, E is also part of modern banking, in particular when it comes to continuous compounding interest. It uses the number E to figure out how much to put in your bank account. And, and what about, did you say E was like two point? So, yeah, so E, uh, when they first found it, it was actually uh, Jacob Bernoulli in 1683, first came across this when he was trying to work out numbers for compound interest. 
the best he could do was it's between two and three. Okay, it was 1683. We'll we'll give him a pass on that. And then Euler came along and was able to pinpoint the number more precisely as 2.71828, and then it goes on forever. It's like pi, actually. They're both transcendental numbers, mm. meaning they're irrational and they're not solutions to an algebraic equation. So there's like no compact way to write them. They're I just mystical. When, I love when people say that they found a number, like like it was just sitting there. Yeah. And I happened to notice it and they picked it up. They discovered like, oh. it. Yeah, that's. I like the idea too. We uh, That's a whole topic on like, do you discover math or do you invent it? Like, Or does it reveal yeah. itself to you? Yeah, Ooh. or has it always been when there? The has it always right. been there? That's right. So that's the whole thing. And so, yeah, this is a and this particular number E is just so useful. It pops up all over the place. And it I told you it's 2.71828. That's cool. There's all sorts of ways to actually calculate. For example, uh, the more calculus minded among us will, will like the natural limit, you know, LIM as N goes to infinity of 1 plus 1 over N, all of that to the N. If you take that expression and you take the limit as n goes to infinity, that will converge on e. Or another way to write it is the sum of all numbers 1 over n factorial. If you'll recall from our deck of cards discussion, factorial, the exclamation point, is 2 factorial is 2 times 1, and 5 factorial is 5 times 4 times 3 times 2 times 1. So 1 over n factorial, if you take all the different n's from 0 to infinity and you add them up, that gives you e. If you take the Taylor series... I start to get lost when you start to run I know. I won't, and it, well, this won't be on the test. No worries. But it's just to show, like, E has a lot of weird, crazy tricks that you do to it. It has all these neat, cool little things. But the most important one is for banking, like I say. If you compound your interest once per year, that's that's fine. If you have, like, a 1000 bucks and you have somehow a 10% interest rate, good for you. And if, if it's compounded once, that's just straight up. At the end of the year, 10%. Of a thousand bucks, that's eleven hundred bucks you would have at the end of the year. Ten percent is a hundred, so great. But if you compound it twice, say after six months, then the first time you would have, you know, it would be fifty bucks because that's half. One thousand fifty. That's right. But then you earn interest on that one thousand fifty. So. So you would have that little bit much more. You would have a thousand one hundred and two fifty. So you'd have an extra two fifty at the end of all that. If you compound three times. You'd have an extra 337 at the end of all this. And so if you do it, if you keep going, if you take this to infinity, it will eventually land on 110517. So you'd have an extra five bucks by doing this compound interest. And E is essential that's to That's the value that. of E right there. That is, because it sounds five simple. Bucks. It's five bucks. But that's for an investment of a thousand dollars, right? So if you have a hundred thousand dollar investment. That's 500 bucks. Easy. Just from the difference of continuous compound interest. That makes a huge difference into how the world is run. So E is not just this cool mathematical oddity that is its own derivative and it has all these crazy things. It also literally impacts anyone with a bank account, anyone who's trying to invest their money. So that deserves a little celebration. So E and pi in a death match, which one wins in your, your opinion? I How can you... To draw. I mean, in mm. terms of what? In terms of popularity or coolness or apples and oranges? Just if you can choose one, which one? Which one are you going with in terms of coolness? Everything all around. <laughs> which which one are you feeling? If you yes. could only have, if you're on a desert island and you can only have one of them. <laughs> well, that's tough. E shows up in more diverse places, I guess. So I might pick E. Also, I feel like pie is too popular, you know. 
Everyone knows a little bit of pi. I, you got to have a little indie cred. E, <laughs> e is cool. There's actually an equation that links pi and E together, which is one oh, of my no. favorites. Ooh. Um, but E doesn't have that kind of devotion to it. Perhaps and, its time is due. Yeah, exactly. Hence, I think why, why E Day should be more uh, heavily celebrated and more well-known. E well, is a really cool number. And it would be the only one that you can celebrate twice a year then, too. That's well, one thing it's got on pi. Yeah, you can't celebrate the 14th month and the third day. Mm-mm. So, yeah, try to celebrate in America and then go abroad and celebrate again. E-Day. Has a nice ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll check back with you in July then. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so for mathematics, we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit. If Discover had a unofficial mascot, I... Think it might be the tardigrade. Yep. Yes, definitely. Or I'm the good. water bear, or the moss piglet. Mm-hmm. We're small, but we're hard to kill. Whichever you prefer. Yeah, hardy. I mean, I think we, we love talking about the tardigrade. We love writing about the tardigrade. We love the name moss piglet. I mean, come on, so cute. Water bear. I mean, these microscopic critters—they look a little bit like eight-legged potato bugs, and you can find them everywhere because they are the survivors of the animal kingdom. Tardigrades. Their name actually means slow stepper. So slow and steady is the name of the game for tardigrades. And they were discovered by German zoologist Johann August Ephraim Guza in 1773. And here are a few of their accolades. In 2016, Japanese scientists brought two of them back to life after they had been frozen for 30 years without food or water. They were collected in 1983 as part of the 24th Japanese Antarctic Research Expedition and then unfrozen, I believe, in 2016. One of them died shortly thereafter, but a second one actually laid eggs. And Story of life. Yeah. Wow. 30 years dormant, back to, back to life, producing new life in short time. Science. Uh, several regions of their genome contain adaptations that protect their DNA. So when researchers at the University of Tokyo focused in on some of these segments in their genome and found a protein that, that appeared to protect their DNA, it's called DSUS or D-S-U-S. So the scientists took this protein, DSUS, which appears unique to tardigrades, put it into a human cell in a Petri dish, not in a real person. But when they blasted those uh, human cells with x-rays, the amount of protein or the amount of DNA damage was halved, or the the cells that didn't have this uh, protein put into it um, were more damaged. So tardigrades have a DNA protectorant. They can also survive temperatures as low as 272 degrees Celsius or as high as 150 degrees Celsius, you can increase the the pressure on them a thousand times that of Earth's surface. They'll be fine. Uh, you can drop them into the vacuum of space and expose them to radiation from space. And they can carry on for, they've noted, 10 days out there. They can actually withstand thousands of grays, which is a standard dose of radiation. A human can withstand about 10 grays. These guys us, are pretty tough. Yeah, We're no tardigrades. <laughs> Not no. even close. We can only aspire to be them. You know, it makes sense why we would choose them as a a potential mascot. But I have a challenger that I think makes a pretty good case. Quite a high bar. There's one that gets close. If there's there's the counterpart to the tardigrade, I would say it is the naked mole rat. I knew it. (laughs) I was just going to say, what could possibly approach the tardigrade? They kind of look like tardigrades, too. They Uh, kind of look like a scrotum with teeth. (laughs) (laughs) They are are, weird looking. (laughs) They are very ugly. They look like... I like to think sausages with skin. But, (laughs) you know... Sure. Big little and big teeth coming out of there. They have, like... 
They have it's huge horrible teeth. Way. They have like black little eyes that Honestly, look like they're, they're scabbed cute. over. Yeah. No, I don't. I think they're so ugly, they're adorable. No, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I think if you saw one in person, it'd be pretty disgusting. I, mean, I don't know. They're kind of, they freak me out. Not which is not a knock on them. I'm not saying I don't like them for it. I just think beauty is not among their characteristics. But it's all. in the eye of the beholder. Mm. Yeah, so. but but sometimes just you let just... Nate cradle his naked mole rat. Oh, <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. Oh, that also is quite the euphemism. They may not be soft and cuddly, but <laughs> not all of them. Anyway, it's not what we all want. So here are some reasons why I think the naked mole rat should be our new. Uh, our new mascot, and we should make a flag with a naked mole rat on it with Discover's logo on it and, All right. and All wave right. it proudly. <laughs> uh, for one, Naked Mole Rat Society is organized a lot like bees. They live in these sprawling underground colonies in the deserts of East Africa. There are hundreds of workers and soldiers that serve a single mole rat queen. She's a bit, <laughs> she's a bit larger and lighter than the rest of them, and then a few lucky males are chosen to, to mate with her. The rest dig tunnels and search for tubers, which is their favorite meal. So they munch on those and protect the colony, dig new holes, and serve their queen. Man. And their queen suppresses potential rivals by secreting a messenger substance in her urine. And that actually suppresses the fertility of other females in the colony. And then when the queen dies, there is a basically a palace revolution and there's fighting. And sometimes this fighting is to the death until a queen emerges as the new um, leader of the the naked mole rat society, oh, someone, and that's just, someone better make this movie. <laughs> that's just how we do it at Discover too. Whenever yeah. it's cutthroat around leadership. here, it really is. You gotta watch out. People are peeing everywhere to suppress our, yeah. our creativity. Yeah, there aren't to too many one. kids being born on staff. <laughs> they can also survive up to eighteen minutes entirely devoid of oxygen, and they do this by lowering their heart rate from about two hundred beats per minute to fifty beats per minute. But then they also change the way they metabolize sugar in their body. So mammals break down glucose, which is a type of sugar, into energy through a process called glycolysis. And this process in its early stages of the reaction requires oxygen, because if you don't have oxygen in this early stage of glycolysis, byproducts will build up in the body and halt energy production, and eventually cells will die. But naked mole rats instead skip this whole segment of glycolysis, and they utilize fructose that doesn't require oxygen to, to create energy. So they, they switch their fuel source to fructose and produce energy that way. So they kind of sidestep a, a system that most mammals and humans rely on. I picture a little switch on the like on their tummies that you can, oh, fructose. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's fine. They have oxygen now. It would but make sense for a, a creature that lives underground, too, in case you yeah. have one, yeah, you know. Yeah. And they, they sleep in giant piles in their dens, too, so the ones at the bottom don't really have access to any oxygen at all. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know that same study they found they can survive low oxygen concentrations, like for hours and hours. The guy that did it, I talked to him, and he basically said they just shut it off because they couldn't. They didn't want to keep going. It was going on for too long. So eighteen minutes is kind of a like an estimate. Yeah, this was but at, probably at could low go a little longer. Huh? Concentrations of oxygen. I think it was like five percent mm. oxygen, which is too low. Human would die. Mm -hmm. Not very long in that, but they can just survive apparently indefinitely. And I, I also read that. They have these complex chambers and networks that are their homes, but each chamber actually serves its own purpose too. So like a chamber will be like a food storage place, they'll have like a sleeping area, they have like a, a mating area. Like, Again, just like Discover. <laughs> <laughs> so they're survivors, they, they live underground and can live without oxygen. They also don't feel certain kinds of pain. They could like climb over spicy foods and stuff. You know how like if you put spicy foods on your lips, like you'll feel the, the burning mm -hmm. from the capsaicin. 
naked mole rats just they don't feel that they because turn that off. It's just because their the molecular messaging system between their nerves and you know their sensing of pain is just different. So it it doesn't even get triggered. And like all good conversations, I love to bring it back to poop. And <laughs> naked mole rats do eat their own poop, and for good reason. The tubers that they eat are really hard to digest, so they'll poop out one meal and there's still nutrients that are still left in there and they'll eat them again just to make sure that they get everything they they need from from do the they, tubers do they eat their own or do they kind of pass it around uh they do eat their own and then they do pass it around because when oh, both. Wow. a queen mole rat's underlings feast on her feces the females get an estrogen boost that actually causes them to take care of the queen's babies as if they are her own <laughs> the, Ingenious. the poop eating kind of makes me want to take it off Discover flag. Man, you thought you thought chemtrails was a conspiracy theory. I guess they have uh, some some sort of mind control capabilities in their in their feces. So, <laughs> do they make any noise? Make them all rest? Do they yip or chitter or anything? That I'm not sure of. I've never heard one. I mean, they're Me they're a very social species, so they yeah. you would Most imagine squeaks. they have different forms of communication. They might be like uh, you know ultrasonic or mm. you know like we can't hear them or not audible to us. I wonder. But also naked mole rats are mostly immune to cancer. And uh, the secret to their to their good health might be a complex sugar that prevents cells from clumping together and forming tumors. Seems useful. But they did find it in, it's called, uh, the sugar actually is called hyaluronin. And it exists in all animals and it helps keep our joints lubricated. It's also an essential component in cartilage. But they use it to keep cells from coagulating together and forming nasty tumors mm. but um, and they there's even been studies where they injected naked mole rats with cancerous cells and they didn't take then it's not to say that they, they don't get cancer um, at least two cases where they they found a naked mole rat with cancer in the fall of 2015 Martha Delaney a veterinary pathologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine discovered two mole rats who did indeed have cancer one was a 22 year old mole rat that had a tumor under his armpit and that was later excised, but it was confirmed to be a, a tumor. But after re removing the tumor, three months later, they checked in on this mole rat, and there were no remnants of cancer whatsoever. Um, and then there's another rat who um, was euthanized because this particular mole rat was getting a rash on its face and um, wasn't eating, so they euthanized mm -hmm. it. But when they checked, they found, again, other cancerous tumors inside their digestive tract. This mole rat was 20 years old. Uh, mole rats, by the way, typically can live to be like 30 years old. Man, it's like the cooler you are as a species, the more terrible stuff we do to them. I was like just going to say. Starving them of oxygen, giving yep. them cancer. Jeez. It, it's like we're begging them to rise up against us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and on aging, it appears they sort of defy the, the laws or the mathematics of aging. Bill, you might be familiar with the Gompertz Makehem model or sure. Gompertz Makehem law, which states that uh, mammals, after reaching their prime reproductive years, the odds of dying in any given year following continue to increase. Mm -hmm. So for human beings, after we turn the age of 30 or so, our chances of dying roughly double every eight years. So when you're 40, you're twice as likely to die in a given day than you were when you were 30. I'm not really sure how they calculate that all, but <clears throat> a recent study showed that naked mole rats don't really uh, adhere to this this model. Um, they looked at a population of naked mole rats, about like 3,000 data points they had. They kept track of where they died and how they died, what was the cause of death. And they found that 
as they get older, their odds of death kind of flatline. It doesn't actually increase every given year. As they get older or near the end of their lifespan, their odds of death even drop. So, you know, of course they all die, but the odds of like... You say, of course. I don't know. After all <laughs> I've been hearing, I wouldn't take Maybe, it for granted. Yeah, it's not that they don't die. It's just that their bodies don't technically show the signs of aging. They don't know if what the secret is to their aging or if it really does defy like the aging process. Maybe it just all happens quickly at the end of their lives. But Maybe they just have really good makeup. Yeah. You know? yeah, I would think if their cells aren't dying in the same way that they would just keep living. So, like, Yeah, that's what aging is, right? <laughs> yeah, so the process by which a naked mole rat ages is still a bit mysterious, and they're trying to figure out what makes them an anomaly amongst other mammals. And that's why they're one of the the key species to study as we look into aging in human beings. So mm. where, where are they found? East Africa, like desert, dry climates. So that's sort of a comparison to the tardigrade. I don't know. I think maybe the naked mole rat doesn't get as much credit because it's kind of ugly and tardigrades are kind of cute, I guess you could say. You can't say that the naked mole rats are ugly. Yeah, I, I can. Think the tardigrades are cute. But I guess that's me building my case to say that the naked mole rat is uh, right on, mm. right in there with uh, tardigrades, especially if we you know encounter nuclear Armageddon. I think tardigrades and naked mole rats will, will still be they around. Could, they could build a new society together. They'll be our progenitors. So votes still for the tardigrade as uh, Discover's unofficial mascot, or have no, I swayed I anyone say, to the naked mole rat? I say tardigrade still. That's just me. Okay. I'm, I'm sticking with the tardigrade, but, but I learned a lot about the naked yeah, mole rat. I didn't know. I respect the naked mole rat. Yeah. Yes. That's for sure. I can offer another creature for our sea collective cucumber. consideration. Oh. It does live in the ocean. Is it? Can I guess what it is? Yeah, sure. Is it the mantis shrimp? <laughs> Ooh, the mantis shrimp. No, Ever oh, okay. Oh, that. Crushing, <laughs> crushing our opponent. The Muhammad yeah, Ali of the ocean. It can see like 40 million more colors <laughs> than we can. Their they're fists go so fast that the cavitating bubbles actually create tiny points of light because they superheat the air. That's badass. Whoa. But what's cooler than that in the yeah, ocean? Yeah, so then? <laughs> what do you got then for us? Well, well, listen in. For our upcoming Everything Worth Knowing issue on newsstands in mid-June. Again, our Everything Worth Knowing issue, we take a bunch of topics and just dive into basically the nuts and bolts of what you need to know to... Kind of like digging into the boredom bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like what we said is like you could go to a a cocktail party and impress all your friends with everything you've learned from any of these topics. Someone just starts talking about this, you'll know enough to fit in Mm -hmm. and, and maybe even say a new thing or two to impress them. And so my contribution this year is octopuses. Everything mm. worth knowing about octopuses. Octopi is also also acceptable, right? Mm. There's really uh, no. Oh, <laughs> gonna have to gonna have to wait t- till June to find out. Oh, I'm not telling. Okay, just gonna let you sound like a fool until then. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm designing that one. So. <laughs> Allison will know. I'll find out. <laughs> I sound I, like a fool every episode. I can just <laughs> tell you guys if you like to. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you though. Um, you know, if I didn't think octopuses were weird, I definitely do now. Octopuses are awesome. Think, yeah. I'm a big cephalopod awesome. fan, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, just by looking at an octopus, you can tell there's something crazy going on, right? You know, no one. Their eyes, yeah. Most movie aliens look like octopuses or cephalopods. Mm-hmm. Don't they have, like, the biggest eyes in uh Oh, uh, the, the squid. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Never huge, mind. though. It's like, it's like, my secret. Is that, like, is is that like, racist that we got, we're mixing up squids and octopuses? Like, do <laughs> octopuses hate that? I, I wouldn't do it in front of an octopus. Yeah. I'll say. I'm not woke. That's right. <laughs> now you are, though. <laughs> 
Um, so I've seen videos of octopuses crawling out of their aquariums. I wouldn't want to. It's creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're just get like mad by calling them a cuttlefish. Or yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a species that actually hunts out of the water, doesn't it? It like climbs onto the rocks of a shore and like, like grabs its prey and then jumps yeah. back into the. They can survive ocean. out of the water for you know longer than you would like to think. So what else did you uh, pull together from octopuses? Um, well, you know, besides there's the I guess there's the basic facts about octopuses. You know, for starters, they've got blue blood, three hearts. They can squeeze through cracks just inches wide because they have no bones. Uh, they can change both skin color and texture to be everything from a piece of seaweed, even other sea creatures. Uh, they have brain cells in their arms. They can edit their own RNA. Brain cells in their arms. Yeah, we've got all these yeah. things are so cool. Wait, wait just a minute. I want to talk about, do they have blue blood and three hearts? Yeah. Isn't that like Doctor Who has? <laughs> two hearts. Two, oh, okay. And they're sorry. better. <laughs> and they're improvement better. over Doctor Who. Man. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Having brains in your Just arms wait. is like saying, like, oh, I have man. biceps in my brains. <laughs> <laughs> I've known I some feel guys like I'd take like the former, though. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, their their camouflaging ability is unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not um, There's one species called the mimic octopus that mm-hmm. has actually learned to become, we're not even sure how many, but you know, I think there's at least a six or seven separate species that it's learned to mimic everything from sea snakes to flatfish to sea anemones to poisonous lionfish, um, either to disguise itself from predators or to sneak up on its prey. It even, like, adopts the shape of them and their colors. And like the them. colors. Whoa. It's shocking to look at yeah. the videos. It, it's like CG. It looks fake, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. not. It's just it's fast. That's I mean, how it does. It's seconds. It's, mm-hmm. They actually have three different kinds of structures in their skin. They have something called chromatophores, which are little sacks of pigment that are controlled by muscles. They'll stretch it out to bring the color to the surface, and then they can contract it to kind of, you know, push that back under so you don't see it. And, I mean, some octopuses can even, they can control it down to, like, you know, a very minute level. Like, half of their body will be one thing, half mm. will be the other. Mm. Um, they also have cells that reflect light and scatter light to help them blend in with, with the background when they're reflecting it or just scatter light. Because that was one of the big questions is, like, how do they do that? Like, if you, mm-hmm. so if you're an animal that can camouflage itself, but you have never seen your reflection, like, how do you know that you're yeah, actually, like, yeah. doing what you're doing? Like, like You just know, right? That's, like, or, kind of like a, yeah, honestly, it's like, how do they... How do they match their surroundings so well? I without... don't know. I mean, they have very good eyesight, so they're obviously able to take that information in. But you know where how that connection works between their mm-hmm. eyes to the their skin. I don't know if we quite know that yet. Man, and I think this plays into what's for me the most fascinating about octopuses is mm-hmm. their intelligence. Octopuses are probably the smartest invertebrates. They they've got as many neurons as a dog to begin with. Uh, they've been observed engaging in some pretty complex behavior. They can open jars and solve puzzles, for example. They've escaped from aquariums. I could barely open jars. <laughs> I know, man. I've, I got lost in an aquarium once. <laughs> it really killed the room. Sorry. <laughs> Guess you're not an octopus. I know. Yeah, the difference between Bill and an octopus is... We don't know that yet. It could be camouflage. It could, yeah. That's true. <laughs> or should I say... <laughs> How many arms is that? It's just the, the, the two. Is Did- that... Three. Didn't you go to the the shed aquarium recently? And yeah, me and, get up uh, close and, personal me and another with editor, the... we went down to visit Rizzo. That's the name of the octopus there. It's a giant Pacific octopus. So we hung out, hung out with Rizzo a little bit. Almost got squirted. They can shoot water from their siphons, and apparently they like to do that with you know new objects or people they don't like. So Strange. Not sure which was which, but. Um, is it like yeah, the Ace creepy. Ventura movie where uh, he goes to the tribe and they spit on him, and that's like a, a sign of a greeting, like a it's a really good thing to be spit on by the chief. <laughs> Wow, that's a reference <laughs> I've that? not heard. <laughs> that's they, not uh, just Ace Ventura. That's Ace Ventura too. Two, yes. Right? Man. Mm-hmm. All I have to say to that is, Chicago. 
Bubblebee tuna. <laughs> wow. None of this can run, right? Because it's like copyrighted. We don't want to get sued by Jim Carrey. It's, it's fair Chicago copyright. Yeah, fair Chicago. Anyway, so it's yes. a not octopus speech yeah. there. But, but did it actually squirt water at you? No, you yeah, just, they can, it just missed you. They can though. go pretty far. They, I guess he wasn't he wasn't quite feeling it today, or he, mm. or he liked us because he didn't hit us, but mm. almost hit the recorder and whatnot. Ooh. And, Ooh. And, yeah. and their arms like tangle up under the the handler's arms, and you can like, yeah, it's really crazy because their arms are just kind of doing their own thing. You know, it's not like you know they're all they have their brains in them. Like yeah. it'll it'll kind of be grabbing onto her arm with one thing, and then another will be exploring behind it. They're all kind of doing their own crazy thing is that why they have like neural cells in there because they can they think kind that of helps it's kind operate of on their own or like get senses on their own yeah their brains they think they're kind of hierarchically organized you know their their arms individually feed information to their brain which kind of puts it together and makes sense of it i mean i found a paper basically saying that they don't know how they use their arms to move because they're kind of you know they crawl across the seafloor mm-hmm. and they're not very organized they're chaotic and random so it's not quite understood yeah. how they it looks weird how they organize that if they do at all one researcher thinks that one of the reasons that they're so intelligent and their brains are so complex is because their bodies are so weird they've got eight tentacles and they can yeah no bones move in yeah and it, essentially an infinite number of degrees of freedom so mm. you know it's really complex that's hard to control so one of the theories is that their brains had to get bigger and more capable just to deal with their bodies. And once they had that, they could evolve other other behaviors, other kinds of intelligence. I've definitely known guys like that who were very smart, but their bodies were weird. <laughs> Name <laughs> some names. Oh. <laughs> it hits too close to home. I so it's sort of, it worked in the opposite direction as humans. So like we gave up certain physical attributes mm-hmm. so we could grow a bigger yeah, brain. Yeah, so we could focus. Whereas uh, their bodies are like, dude, you gotta, your brain needs to keep up here to <laughs> to get a handle yeah, on what's yeah, going and, on. And that is just a theory now. Yeah. There's probably other things that go into it. You know, their abilities to edit their own RNA could play into it. Pretty badass. Know, evolutionary things, yeah. Yeah, elaborate on that real quick. The RNA bit? Yeah, that they can uh, edit their own RNA. Yeah, it's, um, it's, we he can says actually. It so casual. Yeah, man. You yeah. Know. I've been, I've been yeah, like writing guys. about this stuff for so long, man. It's not even. It's old hat to him. Yeah, I remember this was a story boring. in the year in science yeah. that you wrote. Yeah, so all organisms can to an extent. Humans can edit it very, very, we have a very, very limited ability to edit our RNA. And RNA, they're basically molecular messengers. And we should probably be clear that it's not like you just think of, I want to edit my RNA now, and then you do it. It's yeah, not, it's not a conscious. Thing. Yeah, it's not something that you can actively do. But they can they can take these RNA messengers that that are reading their DNA and taking it to a cell where the cell will do something with it, and they're, so they're not editing their DNA, they're not editing their genetic blueprint, but they're editing these messages that are getting sent from the DNA. So you can change, say, the protein that's being made. They found it in places in their genome that seem to be related to cold adaptation, so it could help them learn to live in the cold better. But they also found it in places that are related to like their brains, so it could potentially used to alter their brains on the level of an individual hmm. that's crazy so with the third animal in the list do tardigrades still win i do like octopus yeah so i why why eight why eight tentacles why do they have eight yeah i don't know why do squids have ten yeah well we have ten fingers <laughs> Exactly. They're kind of like little little tentacles. Uh, and I should say, most researchers eight? don't yeah. prefer the term tentacles. Most people uh-huh. refer to them by arms. Tentacles are Excuse me. are something different. Octopuses are actually mollusks. So they used to, mm. way, way back in their evolutionary history, they had shells, and they ditched them at some point. Good and, for them. You know, like snails, they have shells, and they have a little foot that they used to crawl along. Mm-hmm. So an octopus ancestor probably had something like that. 
And as they ditched shells and became more mobile, that split off into many different arms oh. to, oh. you know, let them be able to do, do whatever they want. It's funny that they, they ditched like, shells, whereas you would think they would want to, like, that would be something that would stick around, like the protective aspect of it. Right. I mean, it's a trade-off between defense and agility. Maybe it's, it's like you were saying with humans. You know, we don't have horns or, or other things that we lost those adaptations to focus on our brains. They lost their shell adaptations, and they they got those all those arms and and their brains. You're talking about tentacles. It reminded me of mm-hmm. a picture I saw, which an octopus with 96 tentacles. Oh my god! Wait, what? <laughs> what a coincidence! Whoa. Japan discovers this. Hmm. That's it's a really is weird. that a mutation? That looks like a good sushi dish. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But it was alive. They they kept it, it and it cool. laid eggs apparently. But it, the the eggs it laid, they just hatched normal normal eight armed. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. They um like the females actually brood. Then the females stop eating and just spend months at a time brooding their eggs, wasting away, and then as uh-huh. soon as they hatch, they die. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean the males die right after they they fertilize the eggs. So it's yeah. It was like better. a couple years ago they uh, researchers like monitored one of these mother octopus is hanging hanging by its eggs for four and a half years four and a half years without eating yeah, or anything it's the longest time the longest brooding period of any animal known thus far all her offspring were grateful as hell too yeah they <laughs> that's were. how it is man <laughs> so yeah whether it's a tardigrade octopus or naked mole rat you really can't go wrong if you choose one should we open it up to yeah, listen or suggestions? send in your submissions podcast at discovermagazine.com if you want to email us your suggestion for the most badass animal yeah, or just on the throw planet. it throw in your vote yeah throw in your vote or give us something what new. team are you yeah, yeah. we what would team have, are you we're not just kidding if we get stuff we would talk about it if you have a suggestion that's badass we'll totally bring it up please send us something <laughs> <laughs> that leaves us just one more thing to do one more order of business and that is to greet our friend Attenborough, the shark cereal bowl, who is also our boredom bin. And it looks like it's a toss-up between Nate and Bill, whoever wants to reach in there and give us our next topic for the next episode. Well, doesn't Allison get to pick? Sure. Mm-hmm. Still a toss-up <laughs> between you two. <laughs> yeah. I, I could do it. Go for it, Bill. All right. <laughs> Bill's going to do right. it. So Bill's going to choose a topic. That we, we all wrote different topics and threw them in here into this bowl. And at the end of every episode, we're going to pick one. And Bill will have to tell us very cool sciencey facts about this topic that he's about to reveal. Sand. Ooh, that's a good one. That's cool because I'm from a tropical island. So yeah. I grew up in and around sand. It's in your blood. It, Again. it feels like it. There you it go. Knows. Thank you, Attenborough. You chose wisely once more. <laughs> So stay tuned for our next episode where Bill will enlighten us on the science of sand. And I want to thank you all again for for joining us for this episode. I believe we're on number 15 of It's Only Science. Uh, We invite you to check us out on www.discovermagazine.com where we keep up with the news of the day in the science world. Check out Discover Magazine on newsstands. Subscribe if you love what you're reading. Uh, We also have a science shop, myscienceshop.com. And we've got like flashcards and really sweet globes like Venus globes and Pluto globes and rock kits like moon rock kits and meteorite kits and cool posters. Yep. Board games. There's all kinds of stuff there. And we're going to be adding more and more stuff there um, as time goes on. But once again, thanks for joining us for, for this episode. And we hope you'll stick around for us on the next episode. Until next time. See you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Did you bark? <laughs> <laughs>
Nah. <laughs> That's how I was trying to, trying to think about hockey.